And then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And, we had, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the, the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but the son answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Thank you, Bethany and Eric. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with us to Luke 15. That's where we're going to be spending our time together this morning. You know, during our last time together, um, the setting up here was a little brighter. We had a little little more festive things going because we were still in Christmas season. Um, But Christmas season, as of the 6th of this week of January, um, officially ended and moved us into a season that we are now. It set a stage for us for the season that we're entering into as a faith family, the season of Epiphany, a season where we find ourselves um, celebrating um, the reality of Christ with us, um, Christ for us, Um, God in us, God with us, um, and the light that that is for the world. A season of enlightening the world to the grace and truth of the very light of humanity himself, as John calls it. 
to uh, helping us see a season of looking at what life with God really looks like, the nature of his kingship and the kingdom. Epiphany is a season of increase. It's a growing of a visibility and tangibility of what one author notes is the manifestation of what was, what was at one time hidden. The true nature of what God with us and God for us actually means. For here's the reason, as the Apostle John would later say in the same, uh, same text, our humanity, our human tendency is to miss and misunderstand the, that good news. Our human tendency is to miss and misunderstand the good news of God with us and God for us. As John said um, in chapter one, the true light, which enlightens everyone, the light that for the last six weeks or so through Advent and Christmas season, we've been celebrating through with candles and with, with decorated trees and with our houses lit, all those things that are, that are showing us light in the midst of darkness, all the things that we've longed for coming into existence, that we still miss it. Our tendency is to still miss it. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own dominion and his own did not receive him. He came to his own kingdom. He came to his own place of rule, his own, his own world which he created and which finds itself only and truly and fully in him. And yet the world, his creation, us, missed him, misunderstood him. And so the church for thousands of years has seen it necessary to not just celebrate the light of Jesus, the light coming into the darkness, but to spend an extended amount of time reflecting on and responding to the reality of that light with us because our tendency is to miss. And so we need a season to help us see, to help us see better, to help us see with clarity the very thing that Jesus has come to do and to be the very thing that we've wanted and longed for and that we in some ways have received in the Christmas season. Epiphany Tide is a season for seeing the kingdom of God in its full glory. The glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth, as John would say. But the focus is not just on us seeing the world properly, seeing the kingdom of God accurately, intimately, truthfully. It's also about showing it. Epiphany is not just about seeing, it's also about showing. It's a season, at least in the Protestant traditions, that focuses on the manifestation of the light of life and our role as those whom the light called light ourselves. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, you are the light of the world. You, you and I, me and you, are the light of the world. So let your light, our light, shine before others. The light of life that lightens everyone calls us light. He allows us to see the world as it really is, to see the true nature of life in God's presence, in God's rule and reign, and everything that that exposes, good and bad, truthfully, graciously, and also calls us to reflect, to be like ourselves, to be a part of the very thing which Jesus came to do, which was to enlighten the world. And so our faith family, while we don't follow any particular um, Church calendar, per se, has made it a habit over the last several years to start our year off in Epiphany, with Kingdom Epiphanies, taking a deeper look at the, the stories that Jesus told about the Kingdom of God, stories that Jesus told to help us experience an Epiphany of our own, a revelation of our own, an enlightenment of our own, and by God's grace and the fullness of the Spirit um, to invite others into the same thing. 
stories um, that are meant to enlighten us to the truth and nature of God with us and for us, his kingdom come in the midst of darkness and because we often tend to miss and misunderstand it. Now, these stories um, have a common name and it's parables, right? The stories that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God are parables. Now, parables, according to Klein Snodgrass, are stories with intent. They're stories that at their very nature um, enable us to see truth, to be enlightened. They, they have a purpose to them. They're not just good, fun stories, right? They, they have an intent to them. They are much more, though, than, um, um, than about just heaven in some sort of ethereal or uh, future sense. They are stories about heaven on earth, about what God's kingdom looks like here in this place and in this time. Um, they are directed to the very dominion which Jesus came and revealed himself. Many scholars, including Snodgrass and others, argue that the immediate aim of a parable is to divert our attention and disarm us. To, as Soren Kierkegaard once said, deceive the hearer into truth. The parables get to us in a way that um, arguments don't, that propositions don't, that an outline doesn't. <clears throat> because, you see, parables are common everyday stories. Every parable that Jesus tells is, is in some ways a familiar circumstance for the people that heard it. And in their familiarity, in their subtlety, they can't really be argued against. In their familiarity, in their subtlety, in their easy connection, everyone who heard the parables that Jesus told would have easily found themselves in the story, would have filled in the blanks naturally as Jesus is telling these stories. And because of that, they're disarmed. Because of that, the story begins to weave into their minds and all the little safeguards that come up that would have us argue against what Jesus would preach the kingdom to be. What, what we might hear from somebody else as the dis description and definition and argument of God's kingdom and nature all kind of get subverted, moved around. And we find ourselves exposed to the reality of God with us, God for us, in ways that we would otherwise be defensive against. That's why Jesus told these stories. That's why he told these parables. They, they get through the veil that keeps us from missing, keeps us missing and misunderstanding God with us, God for us, the light that is the life of humanity. But they don't just grant us clarity. They don't just allow us to see what we would otherwise not see because of our own um, just culture, natural tendencies to, to not, not see it. They also urge us to live in confidence that the light provides. They don't just allow us to see, but they encourage us, urge us, exhort us to live with the confidence of light. Have you ever been in a place that's, where the, that's really dark? Did you, did you move with a lot of courage in the dark? No, you kind of, you kind of slowly tiptoed your way through it because you didn't want to trip. Like every noise that you heard, <clears throat> maybe it was a little bit like intimidating, right? But then when the light came on, you found yourself like in just a common room where there was no dangers. Did you feel a little silly? A little bit? right? But that, that's kind of normal, right? That's kind of what the parables do. They're like, hey, listen, you've been walking around in the dark, like a little bit, right? You've been walking around in a mis misunderstanding of who God is and how he works and what he's doing, who you are, all those kind of things. And so you walk kind of timidly. But when you, when you see, when the light's on, you can walk with courage. You can walk with just normal, like a normal vigor of moving around the room without fear, without intimidation, Right? And that's what the, the parables call us to. They don't just give us information. They call us to action. 
Like prophets before him, Jesus told parables to prompt thinking and stimulate response in relation to God and others in our everyday lives and habits. Again, this is why we enter into these parables, especially in the season of Epiphany. And we're gonna do this through each Sunday, starting today, taking a different parable. Now, I said this last week, and so I'm gonna say it again. If the only time you hear this parable is on Sunday, I mean, hopefully it'll be a good experience for you, all that fun jazz. But really, like, like you need to, to, to get the fullness of what we're talking about in this season, you need to be ones who chew on the word yourself, eat the word yourself, who, who meditate on it yourself. And so on the app and on the website, we have already listed what parables we're going through, what we'll be in today, next week, and the week after, along with a little bit of some guided questions and ways of entering those parables throughout the week so that you can talk about them in gospel community, in DNA, with friends, with your spouse, with your family, and so that when we come in here, as we'll do even in just a little bit, we can actually kind of digest them together, right? And so that it's not just a one-way communication, but that together we're actually entering into the parables. And so again, on the website, on the app, you'll find those. I encourage you to, um, to, to go through which ones we're gonna be in over the next few weeks. But today, we're gonna be in the parable of the two sons. Or maybe as you more commonly know it, the parable of the prodigal son. Or as one author calls it, the parable of the lost brothers, right? Like we, we tend to think of these, this parable, right, with um, uh, in the context of at minimum, the son who runs away, right? He's kind of the, in our, in our estimate, the main character. Or, you know, we admit, because like, like Bethany read for us the very first verse in chapter 15, verse 11, was the story, Jesus told a story about a father with two sons. So there's two, there's not just one, there's two. But the reality is this, and this is where Jesus is brilliant. The, the story, the story, main character of the story really is not either son, but the father character. The main character of the story is not really either son, but the father character. He's the one character interacting with all the other characters, both seen and assumed. He's the one character that interacts with both the sons. He's the one character, as we'll see in a moment, that interacts even with the community that was kind of this off-scene community in which all this takes place. This is first century. None of this happens in a home that's, that's segregated from the rest of the community. All this happens within a context of a community, a very intimate community, a community in which this is a prominent family. So not only is it a normal that everybody would know it in the community, but, but like because of their prominence, like they are widely known. Everything is known about this family, right? So like all this takes place in the midst of a community. And the father interacts with the community, as we'll see. And the father interacts with the servants of the household. Everybody that's in the story, <coughs> the father interacts with, basically. While our attention is often transfixed on the prodigal, it's really the nature and revelation of the, father's char- the father character which shapes every detail of the story. It's really the revelation of the father character, the nature of the father character that shapes every interaction within the story. This is why I think one, uh, one scholar, um, kind of tongue-in-cheek, calls this parable the, the parable of the forgiving father. He puts the sons in their place and he elevates the father. And maybe because our tendency too is to elevate um, children and their experience of life pretty highly in our culture, we do the same. We focus on the sons. Maybe in part because we wanna continue our childlikeness. <laughs> we wanna take the sides of one of the, one of the kids. 
But the reality is the kids have a place in it and a proper place. There's no story without the two sons. But I think Jesus crafted this sermon in this way, this story in this way, um, so that those with ears to hear would find themselves surprised, amazed, offended, and enchanted by the attitudes and actions of the father character. That Jesus told this story in a way that they would be amazed, surprised, offended, and enchanted by the character and nature of the father character. Even if they saw themselves as a brother, as one of the sons. Because the reality is we're gonna identify with, with somebody in the story, right? And most likely we'll identify with one of the brothers. But the purpose isn't for us just to identify with the brothers, but to identify with the father's interactions with the brothers. Since our daily and cultural norms are a bit different than the first century, Jew and Gentile who would have heard this because Jesus told this parable um, coming out of Samaria with um, a bunch of tax collectors and sinners as well as uh, scribes and Pharisees and disciples. There's a whole mixture of people that are listening to this, right? Because our norms are a little bit different I want to kind of paint a picture um, that's a little more vivid of some of the things that maybe we don't quite fill in as we hear the story. Um, And so I want us to kind of walk back through the story a little bit, and I want us to kind of see some things maybe from a more uh, first century kind of perspective a little bit, a little bit of a context. And as I do so, I want us to keep in mind a couple things. One, what this story reveals about the son's desires and assumptions, both sons. What were the sons really after? What did they really want? And what did they really assume about the father? What did they really want? And what did they assume about the father? And then also how the father uncovers, um, uh, acknowledges what they want and their assumptions, and at the same time confounds them. So keep that in mind as we kind of go back to the story. So I would imagine... um, as ones uh, who have been children before, that you've experienced the cultural norm of being um, humiliated by a parent. As as everybody in here at one point felt embarrassed by their parents. And as I'm saying this, my parents are here. So like, so this is really awkward for me. Um, I'm embarrassed now for my parents, Um, um, you know. So this would be really great if you could just turn around, Dad, and just kind of look that way just for a few moments. Um, no, I mean, we've, there's, there's been a moment at some point in all of our lives, right, where our parents humiliated us in some way. Um, listen, what they did probably in their own right was not a humiliation. They weren't humiliating themselves. They weren't like being silly or whatever or like, or did something, um, um, uh, you know, out of, uh, you know, the, a cultural norm, but as children, we felt like what they did was like intrude upon our world and our space in a way that, that exposed us, shed light on us, and made us look like we weren't whoever we thought we were. <laughs> maybe embarrassed us in front of our friends, maybe did something at a mall, maybe did something at school, I don't know what it is, but we've all kind of been there, right, at some point? And listen, like there, there are probably real times where our parents have done things to really embarrass us. But for the most part, a lot of this happens kind of in our child growing up when we are less sure of who we are, um, less sure of what we really want. Um, we, we may think in the moment that we're really, we really know who we are and what we want, but, but we're really not settled and we're embarrassed because of that, right? 
And so we've all, we've all kind of experienced this moment where, um, uh, where we felt like the world was gonna come to an end because of something our parents did. Um, we felt a crushing embarrassment and we wanted to disappear or protest our association and just deny that, that we were related, right? And whether the humiliation was, again, a merely teenage devastation or a true revelation of something broken, being embarrassed and humiliated by a parental figure is a stereotypical fear and experience shared across our human existence, right? And Jesus' story plays off this shared experience, but as is Jesus' custom, he does so with a slight twist. He, he takes this natural tendency to be embarrassed by your parents, and he turns it on its head a little bit. For the man, the father with the two sons, is one who over and over and over again humiliates himself. But not against his children. He doesn't humiliate them and humiliate himself. He actually humiliates himself for them. He doesn't just humiliate himself and thus make his kids embarrassed. He humiliates himself for the sake of his children. So let's go back for this, to the story and I'll show you what I mean. In verse 12, the man with two sons, um, the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, just a quick word. So in the ESV, it reads property. <clears throat> he obviously in a couple of, of uh, verses later goes and loses the property. You can't lose the property, right? Like the property can't be just taken up, taken to another country with him, right? The actual term there is living it's like substance, what's necessary for life, which could be financial resources, could be whatever it is, but it's, it's the resources of life is what it is, right? So he asked for the resources of life for his father. Essentially what the son said is this. He says, Father, I wish you were dead and I wish to live as if you were dead. That's what the son asked. Everyone listening to Jesus' story would have gasped at the arrogant and offensive statement of the son. To ask the father for the resources of life that he felt entitled to at that moment is to ask the father to die, legally at minimal, to die. Still, beyond the merely social and emotional insensitivity, the law also forbids such action in the first century. A child could not gain their inheritance while their parents lived. This law, in part, was put in place to protect parents from, strong arm kid, from being strong-armed by their kids. But it, it, was, um, it was also the expectation that children would care for their parents. So it was also there to protect the parents so that the children would be responsible for the things that they were meant to be responsible for, the taking care of their, of their, their parents when they got older. So it was to ensure the longevity of the family, it was to ensure the longevity of the community. And so only after a parent's passing could any of this be possible. So again, the son knows what he's asking. He's asking the father to die, to pass away, to leave. And so the younger son's demand to live his life without his father, on his own, yet with the proceeds of his father's life. Get that. He's asking to live life on his own, without the father, but on the father's proceeds, everything that the father had, the father's life, was a slap across the father's face and a disregard for the rules governing community life at the time. I mean, it's a pretty abrasive thing to ask. 
And everyone who would have heard the story would have been absolutely jaw-dropped at the beginning. Speaking of the community that would have listened, the up to this point quiet cast around the edges of the scene would have been infuriated with the younger brother. Again, he's doing something that's against the law of the community, that, that harms the community. Especially in the first century, village or town, word of the younger brother's insolence would have spread like wildfire. The community would have expected the father to return the slap from the youngest son, probably literally, physically, and to have punished him for even considering it. That would have been the expectation of the community. That's what you did to a child who was being disrespectful, is you showed them who was boss, who was in charge. You showed them, revealed to them their sinfulness, if you would. The anger of his relatives and neighbors is one reason why the younger son takes out of town so quickly. Remember in the story, in just a couple of verses later, it just says a couple of days later, he's out. And he's out not just because he's ready to live his own life, he's out because he's gotta be. Nobody is gonna entertain him anymore. He can't physically get rid of the, the property that's his because no one's gonna buy it and no one's gonna work from him because of the offensiveness and the nature of what he's doing, the illegality of what he is doing. And so the reality of the only way that he gets anything to leave with is the father calls in all his debts, sells parts of what he owns, and goes to whatever kind of banking systems were of the day that could, and take out everything that he has. That's the only way this son can get what he's got. He, he can't manage it in his own. He, he can't prosper in this community anymore because no one's gonna allow, no one's gonna work for him and no one's gonna buy from him. And so the father somehow, I mean, knows this, right? And so he gives him, liquefies for him his inheritance. If anything... If anything, the father character should have been the one that was embarrassed. If anything, the father character should have been the one who was embarrassed. I mean, think about what this would do to his reputation in the community, to have a son that would do this. Because again, everybody's gonna know, not just because it's a small town, because the father has to go and call in his debts, because he's gotta sell stuff, because he's gotta pull stuff out of the bank, confirming and affirming the truth of the son's demand that he wishes his father dead and wants to live life without him. How humiliated must the father have been? Disrespected. But let's stop and consider this for a second. What would drive a son to treat his father this way? Why would a son ask something of this of his father? To die, legally, to live life without him. What would drive him to do that? What desires and assumptions would fuel such a costly request? What do you think he assumes about the father? I mean, just think about it for a second. Let's just be honest. Why would anybody want to run and live life without their parent? Why would anybody want to be in charge of their own world? Why would anybody want to do what they want to do? And what, what must the, the son thought about the father to not just ask him for more responsibility, more freedom, but to demand rather that the father be out of his life completely? What sort of relationship do you think they had? What do you think the son assumed about the father? Do you think the father was controlling? Do you think the father was manipulative? Do you think the father was ungenerous? Do you think the father was unkind? 
Did he not think the father thought highly of him? Like, what did he assume about the father that would compel him to, to make such a communally destructive demand? Life-destructive command, demand of his father. I mean, think about it. Just for a second, let it sit for a second, because it's important that we think about it. There's an assumption about the father that the son has. I mean, that's a part of the reason that Jesus is telling the story. But here's the, the truth. No one then, and only a few of us now, um, but, um, but probably not many of us, if we're honest, would have expected the father to grant the son's demand for his life, right? I mean, it's one thing if your kids come up to you and demand money for a treat um, or demand to be able to go out with friends or whatever. It's a different thing to, for them to demand for you to die and to give you everything that is theirs for life. For as one scholar notes, um, what the father does next is essentially suicide. The son has effectively told his dad to drop dead legally, which is what the father does. The father's complying with the son's demands is an act of humiliation. Again, to provide his son with the living or property he requests, the life substance of his being, as it reads in the Greek, the father character has to give up what is rightfully and only his. It's not the son's. Legally, it's not the son's. It is not the son's right to ask for this. It is an illegal act. He had no right to ask for it. Everything that the father does, he did, the father character did, not because he had to, not because the, the son forced him into it, not because the son had a right to ask for it. And to do so, the father would look like an absolute fool in the community. He would look like an absolute fool in the community and maybe even especially to the older son. He would look like an absolute fool to give into this petulant child, this illegally demanding child, to do something that could not be forced to be done. He would look like a fool. And so what does the son do? The son takes the father's life, not just his stuff, but his very being and substance and squanders it in reckless living, verse 13. That is living without a long-term plan. That's what reckless means. Living without a more significant or eternal perspective. And so thus foolishly. Now, I know you, you think when the term reckless comes up that you think about what the older brother says about the son, right? They squandered it on, on uh, um, paying for things that he shouldn't be paying for, um, doing, you know, that kind of living. But the older son never talked to the younger son. How does he know? He's just angry. Like, it doesn't say anywhere in the story that the, the younger son squandered his, his um, on, on a licentious lifestyle. It just says he acted, made some foolish mistakes. He invested poorly. He didn't think long-term about how to use what he was given. He didn't know how to make the living last. And so it was squandered. It was gone. And at a time when he really needed it, it wasn't there. Time of despair and of famine, he didn't have the things that he needed to survive. So it doesn't say licentious. We tend to read it in there. It's not just a life that was completely void of any morals. It was just a life that didn't have wisdom. He took what the father gave him and couldn't make the most out of it. He took the father's life and couldn't make the most out of it apart from the father. 
And so finding himself in a hole of his own making, the son comes to his senses, wises up and remembers the life, even as the least under his father's care is abundant. What does he say when he's in the, 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 the uh, verse 15? Um, he says, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country um, to, uh, to work in his fields and to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed by the pigs, but, but couldn't even get what the pigs ate. But in verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? More than enough. How many people just under my father's care who aren't even children have abundance? He starts to see something that maybe he missed when he was with his father the first time. Right? Just for a little bit, he starts to see with a bit of clarity. But we still see he's a little bit off because he doesn't just start to see that, see the clarity of the abundance of the father. He begins to formulate a plan of how he could take advantage of that. He, he admits that he wasn't the wisest decision maker, that he had not led a perfect life. Like, listen, I'll go to the father. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. I'm unworthy to be called your son, but bring me back in as a hired servant. If given the chance, the son thinks that he could work his way back up from the bottom and maybe, just maybe, he could benefit from his father's existence once more. That he could maybe again take advantage of what his father gave him, what his father had, what his father did. And part of that's because he begins to recognize the nature of the father, but he's still got it in his head that he can work the system. And so belly aching for fulfillment turns toward home. Right, this is where we all love it. Yes, he's ready to repent, but he's not really ready to repent. He's really ready to admit that the father's way is better than his way, but, but if I could just get back in at a certain level, I could just take advantage of that and still kind of be my own person, right? That's essentially what the, what the son comes up with, right? He's not quite at a place of repentance, kind of, beginning, it's there. He's starting to see with clarity, but not quite fully what's happening. His solution's all fixed. He'll go home. He'll apologize to his father for squandering the property and resources, and, the, and he'll set his plan in motion. Um, albeit, though, with a, you know, depending on a little help from the father character. But he assumes the father character has been at least abundant to his servant, so he'll be abundant to him. And so he'll help. The father, ironically, will help him make things right. But the only problem is the villagers, right? The community. Like it's, it's not just the father. He's kind of got the father thing figured out, but now he's got to go back into the community. And as Kenneth Bailey, a, a Middle Eastern scholar noted, he said, any status in the village would be difficult for the son to achieve. His return to home is greatly complicated by the manner of his leaving. He left having offended the entire community. Now he has lost the money to the Gentiles of all people. He squandered life in a foreign country, working for pigs in a forbidden way. He's made himself unclean in every sort of way possible in this, this context. Thus, he can fully expect the extended family to cut him off when he returns, to have nothing to do with him. His entry into the village will be humiliating and ruthless as the pent-up hostilities of the villagers are vented on him for having insulted his father, sold the land out of the context of the community because the father no longer has it, and now lost everything that came from that. For this problem, the youngest son has no solutions. He's like, he knows all those who never made mistakes those never tried and failed, those always pl who played it safe, that did the right things, they'll judge him. But what else can he do? Where else can he go? He knows he needs the father. So he's willing to at least make his way back in. So he keeps walking. But unbeknownst to the son, the father character is watching for him. 
And once again, the father character does something unexpectedly humiliating. He runs. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, And he arose, the son arose, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, so th that idea of long way off means like other side of the village. Like not at the, the entry to the, to the, the property of the, the father, not at the, his front gate or his door, but way off. And it assumes two things. One, that the father character was looking for his son. That he had known the direction that he went and that he would return. Like that there would be a return. They expected it. But that also that he was waiting to do something for the son on his way back. He runs. And so it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And while that sounds great to our modern century minds where we watch these movies of people running towards each other and embracing one another, in the first century, a man, and especially a man of prosperity and of high rank, would never, absolutely never run in public. It was an absolutely humiliating, socially unacceptable and shocking way to behave completely against all character, all idea of nobility, all idea of, of, of rank, all idea of social acceptability. Now, I, and I'm, I'm emphasizing this because I know it seems strange to us, right? Just to have a guy run would be that embarrassing, but it's absolutely demeaning of the father to run. It couldn't have been more demeaning. And again, once again, the hearers of this story would have been shocked. They would have been shocked at the way their father responded, that he ran. Such an action, again, is absolutely humiliating. And notice this, the father does not just run to the entry of his estate, but across the entire village so that, so that everyone would see him running. So that everyone would witness his humiliation for his son. The father intentionally ran, intentionally humiliated himself for the sake of his son. Humiliated himself in front of the whole community for the sake of his son. What the father does in the homecoming scene can best be understood as a series of dramatic actions calculated to protect the boy from the hostility and the rage of the village and to restore him to fellowship within the community. What the father do, did is a calculated, dramatic humiliation to protect his son. First, he runs. Second, the father embraces the son making the reunion public on the edge of the village, ensuring that everyone can see the son is accepted under the, under the father's care. He'll move across the village, not as one who has to take the stares and the moans and the, the insults, but one who's rather embraced by the father under the care of the father. There's no doubt in the heart and the intention of the father. And then the father kisses his son. It's a sign of reconciliation, of forgiveness, something the son was expected to do to the father to fall to his knees and kiss the father. But instead, the father preemptively embraces the son and kisses him. The son, rather than experiencing the ruthless hostility he deserves and anticipates, witnesses an unexpected, visible demonstration of love and humiliation. The father's acts replace speech. There are no words of acceptance and welcome. The love expressed is too profound for words. Only acts will do. And in the light of the humiliation of the father, the son can only say, I am unworthy. I have sinned and I am unworthy. No longer is he able to offer, I'll be a servant in your house. The son recognizes for the first time, 
that his father has humiliated himself for him on his behalf, that the father died for him, gave his life for him so that he might be able to have the father's life again and in full. The younger son missed the father's humiliation the first time around. In the obliging that the son demand, he missed that his father gave up his life for him. But he couldn't miss it here in the open. The father doing for him what he should have but could not do himself, dying for his sake. He couldn't miss it the second time. And the father doesn't just continue his humiliation for the son. The father ensures that the prodigal rises from his lowly heart and place into a place of honor. He doesn't just humiliate himself so that the son is spared. He actually humiliates himself so the son is actually honored. He tells the servants to dress the son, making sure the servants and the son know their place in the home. The father then gives the son his robe, his own robe. As guests arrive at the banquet, they will know right away that the relationship is restored, that there is no doubt of full restoration because he's wearing the father's clothing. The father gives the son a signet ring, which means the son has been entrusted with the responsibilities of sonship, the very responsibilities he abandoned. He's not just not just brought back in to receive a little bit of life, he's brought back into the full station that he left. The father also gives the son shoes. And we've kind of passed over this because we're like, what? Why is he giving him shoes? But shoes are a sign of a free man in the house. He's bound by relationship, by love, and not by debt. The son does not come in in debt. He comes in free the very thing that the son wanted at the beginning. He gets. And the father gives the fatted calf, which means the entire village will be joining the two of them in celebration. And they'll have to face all their own issues with the father and the son and what their perspectives are gonna be. In the end, the son got everything he was really after. Freedom, honor, family, welcome, acceptance, responsibility. But only after the father character endured the son's humiliating actions and humiliated himself, even dying legally for him. And that would be great if the story stopped there. But remember, this father character has two sons. The youngest squandered the father's life given for him with reckless living. And the older, well, he lived just as foolishly. The older son lived just as foolishly as the younger son. Remember what verse 12 said. Let's go back to it. Verse 12. The younger of the sons said to the father, Father, give me the share of property, living, life that is coming to me. And the father divided his living, his life between them. You see, at the beginning of the story, the father gives both the sons life. Both of them his life. The father Legally to, for the father legally to die, he can't just do it for one. He's got to do it for both. And both are given all that they need, all that they want, all that they desire for life, to have their lives, their own lives. Both sons get what they wanted and they desired. Free life when what was the father's character became theirs. This younger son ran with his portion and ran it into oblivion. The older son stayed and kept trying to earn it. What a fool. He had it, and yet he tried to earn it. The older son was not a steward 
was not living as a steward of what he had been given, trying to prosper and continue what he had been given, but he was living as a bitter servant. Listen to his whining in verses 28 through 30. This is what the son says in verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. He came up to the party after a long day's work, after the end of the day, and was like, what's going on here? Servant came and told him. And so, like a child, he throws a fit, stomps out, refuses not to attend. And so his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you've never gave me a young goat. Well, but wait a minute, the father gave him everything. What do you mean the father didn't give him a goat? The father already gave him everything that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. The older son whines. He says, Father, I served you all this time and you didn't give me even the most common animal, the, most, the cheapest thing to celebrate with. You didn't give me a, even a little bit of a portion of what you gave him. And you let this one who wasted it on things too improper to think about come home without recompense and you celebrate it. Clearly, the son's issue is with the father and not just his little brother. The older son has an issue with the father too. Why is he frustrated? Why is he frustrated with his father? What would cause him to accuse his father of such unexpressive love and ingenerosity? I mean, what, what would he assume about the father to have thought about the father in such a way? Maybe that the father only um, kept him around if he did good things, or maybe the father was foolish and needed him to really keep things going. Uh, who, what, what, what do you think maybe caused the son to be so embittered that when his younger brother comes and returns and the father does what, what was his property, his, his right, all that was his life, uses it to celebrate, this one son says, well, you've, you've been generous with him and been so unkind to me. Why would he say, why would he stay outside? Just think about that for a second. What did he assume about the father and the way the father ran his house that would keep him from celebrating with the return of his brother? Speaking of being outside, we see the father once again humiliate himself even for the older brother. The fact that the oldest son was not at the party would have been enough uh, to get the social gossip mill working once again for this family. If they didn't have enough going on already in the community with the way the younger son acted now, the older son's actions would have caused just as much shame on the father as the younger son's. To not come into the celebration, to, to refuse to come in. It's one thing if he had been out working and just missed it. But remember, he's been seen. He's been spotted at the party. He's been told what's going on at the party. And angrily, like visibly refuses to go into something that his father is put on, a celebration. To do so would be an offensive act towards the father, right? And again, the father would have been expected to not accept the offense, 
but to send out his servants to demand that his son come in and to demand that his son be a part of the party. But what does the father do? The father does something unexpectedly humiliating. Again, he leaves the place of the party and goes to the son. And not just going to the son, it says he goes to entreat the son. And entreat in the original language means beg. A father does not beg a child, especially in the first century. The father goes, and where the son should have groveled to the father, either one of the sons, in their humiliation of the father, the father does for them what they should have done. He humiliates himself and begs his son to come in to the celebration, to life in abundance, to the enjoyment of all that was already this son's. To this son's offensive and blind accusation, the father responds with an enlightening statement. Because we see at least, okay, let me say this. The father responds with an enlightening enlightening statement. He says, son, you are always with me. This is verse 31. You are always with me. Never out of sight or mind or missing from the table. You're always with me. You've never left. You're always here. I've always been here for you. I've always been here with you. And all that is mine is yours, already yours. Remember verse 12. Already, literally everything that you see and experience and use and all that is yours from me. Why, my child, are you wasting your life trying to earn what has been freely given? That's what the father's saying. Why are you wasting your life trying to earn, control, manipulate, use, whatever, all that you've been freely given. Why are you living like I have not already died for you also? That's what the father asked the older brother. Why didn't you see that I died for you too? Let's pray. Father, How amazing is it that, um, that it's so easy for us to miss and misunderstand the nature of life that comes only from you, of life that is you, the light of life itself. to think that we can live our lives without you or that even living life with you somehow think that it depends upon our work, our efforts, our control. I pray for these next few moments, Father, Lord, as we sit in song and reflection. Lord, that in ways um, deep and shaping that the truth of the king and his kingdom through the story of Jesus would open our eyes. In your son's name we pray. Amen.